Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to today's edition of The Profile. I'm Justin Briley and in the first part of today's show, I'll be sitting down to speak to Cathy Gilbert of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa on her story of going from hitchhiking hippie to Jesus freak in the late 1960s as part of the Jesus People revival that swept America's West Coast and saw thousands of hippies coming to faith. And in the second half of today's show, Sam Hales will be speaking to Joseph Steinberg about growing up in a Jewish family and coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Joseph Steinberg is now head of Christian Witness to Israel. You can find more interviews with Christians in all walks of life in Premier Christianity magazine. Ask for a free sample copy at our website premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And now my conversation at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa with Kathy Gilbert. So Kathy, um, I'd love to hear your story of, of how you came to faith. Okay. Um, when are we going back to here? Well, I was uh, born in the East Coast of uh, America and grew up in Maryland and grew up in the 60s. And um, in, the, in the late 60s, probably about 1966, I discovered hippies. Mm. Look and Magazine did a big spread on it. And I thought, I love what they represent and yeah. uh, their culture, their lifestyle. And I... So I slowly kind of adapted to it as much as I was allowed to. I was the oldest of six in a very conservative Catholic home. And so I was very restricted on what I was allowed to do and not do. But, so, but by the time I graduated in 1969, I was what I considered myself a full hippie. Yeah. And so my mom uh, drove me to a commune in Fairfax, Virginia, dropped me off. And from there, I was in a hippie commune. There, we did a drug run to San Francisco, which that's like the ultimate for the hippies was go to San Francisco. So lived in San Francisco in different communes for a while. Returned um, to the East Coast with these people and left this commune and then decided to go to a concert that I had heard about, Mm. which was called Woodstock up in upstate Mm. New York. And so I hitchhiked up to Woodstock and... Um, connected with a bunch of people, ended up staying for two weeks um, at the Hog Farm Camp. And the Hog Farm Camp was a separate uh, concert area that they had built up for, they had their own amphitheater where Ken Kesey's, Ken Kesey and the Electrical Aid Acid Test and Thomas Wolfe's book, and the commune was the Hog Farm up, Mm. up in New Mexico, and they had their own psychedelic buses there. Grateful Dead, that's where the Grateful Dead would do their music. And so our camp was where they did the, had the overdose tent and the microbiotic tents. And so that's where I stayed for two weeks. And 
And I'm thinking all this time, you know, these are like the ultimate hippies. Yeah. I mean, this, this was, okay, let's be honest, you know, this was very much a, a, a drug culture. Yes. The, smoking the marijuana. Yes. And, and doing all kinds of LSD. All kinds of LSD. This was yeah. all kind of with the idea that this was opening your mind to new realities mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Right. So you really bought into that whole culture. Oh, I believed it. And I was seeking what they promised, which was basically a nirvana mm. or that completeness or that satisfaction or that wholeness. Mm. And of course, I never found it in the drugs and the lifestyle and the philosophies. Uh, but I kept seeking and I thought, mm. you know, that it was my problem, you know, that I wasn't pure enough, okay. you know, that if I could just be clean enough and and ultimately to be clean enough, um, you know, we did the whole microbiotic yeah. thing. Uh, and, so and it was guess, a diet. And there were people seeking it in, in the Eastern philosophies. Yes. There were, you know, the Beatles went off and did did the whole thing, didn't they, with the, uh, <clears throat> uh, and so on. So, so I guess people, it was a time of immense searching for your generation right. at that time. Right. And we, and it felt that the Eastern philosophy was the, the closest to what we felt was the answer. And, but it, it was so elusive because mm. you never found what was promised mm. and you never found that completeness in that wholeness and that purity. I mean, you never found, mm. you know, even redemption. There was no redemption. Mm. And so I went back to the West coast, which you know, I'm a good hippie girl, so I, I uh, left the East Coast and returned to San Francisco and, you know, lived in different communes there. And again, that same disillusionment, that same disappointment. And you never that found same, what you were looking for. Never found what I was looking for. And so I thought, well, it's the people, it's the philosophy, it's the drugs, it's the, you know, being on the West Coast and, and knowing that, you know, the scene in San Francisco wasn't it. So I decided, okay, I'm going to just, just I'm going to hitchhike to Big Sur. And Big Sur is beautiful, you know, wild area uh, on the coast of California, south of um, San Francisco, but very much north of Los Angeles. And so I lived in Big Sur, and I'm loving it. And yet, again, the the promise wasn't fulfilled, and it was still very elusive. So I left all the people. I... By this time, all I had to my name was a backpack, a walking stick, a sleeping bag, and a sweater, and a iching. So I didn't give up the Eastern religions. I felt like, well, the I Ching, and I had my, the sticks. You're supposed to throw mm. the sticks, and the I Ching will t- teach you how to read the sticks. Of mm. course, I didn't get it. Yeah. So, but that's what I had. And I had my bag of roasted soybeans, and I thought, okay, I'm going to live back a creek. I'm just going to, I'm going to live here until I, till I find it. Mm. And I didn't find it. Mm. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to start hitchhiking. So I started hitchhiking, and I didn't want to go to L.A. because I thought no self-respecting hippie went to L.A. because they're posers. Uh, they weren't real hippies. They're you know they're these Hollywood hippies, and they you know they just weren't the real thing. The doors. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided I'm just going to hitchhike north, and so I'm hitchhiking, and I'm going through you know a few days, and I'm stopped at these different communes, and again just thinking, okay, I'll try this commune, and this was a commune out of. Oakland, Oakland Free Press, and that was the summer solstice. And they said, oh, yeah, go to this commune in the Wairika, Black Bear Ranch. They just, you know, they're like, they've got it. And I thought, okay, these are like the ultimate hippies Mm. again. And it it was just the same type of scene. It was just the hustling and the using and the, um, and I never, you know, it just, they didn't have the answer. So I just said, okay, no more communes. I'm not going to another commune, so I'm hitchhiking through Oregon by this time. Rairica's on the coast. Hitchhiking through Oregon, 
and a logger, an old older gentleman, picked me up. And you know, by this time we're we're on the Willamette River and along the Willamette Highway. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to find a place to to camp. And so he's telling me about the Oregon trees, and Oregon is gorgeous. And so he said, you know, we're getting towards Eugene. You know, it, do you want to go into Eugene? And I thought, no, I'm not ready for the city again because it meant panhandling mm. and getting enough money to keep getting some supplies and then, you know, to keep going. So I thought, okay, just drop me off at this road. And so this road was Rattlesnake Road. And so I, he dropped me off, and I didn't get any rides. So I'm walking and walking and walking. It's gorgeous. There was no rain. It was just just absolutely gorgeous. But I'm walking. It's getting late getting tired, getting hot. And I'm, the one thing that, you, that I tried never to do is stop and really think about where I was going. Because if I did, I don't know if it was as much LSD as I used, um, I knew that there was an abyss there. Mm. And if I would allow, I, there was just like one step mm. that I could take and I would be in the abyss. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's mental illness, I don't know what it was, but I just knew that I was a step away mm. from hell Mm. and I wouldn't have called it hell but I knew that it was this blackness darkness and it was evil and so I kind of started feeling that way and so I put down my backpack and I pulled out this I had this little recorder you know which is a little um, flute and I pulled it out and I started you know playing the flute because I'm thinking I gotta psych myself out I'm really don't want to go into the abyss so I'm playing my flute and I don't I I have no musical ability but it didn't matter if you're a hippie (laughs) you just play because you're you know you're bonding and you're you know yeah, you're connecting yeah. with the world around you and the flowers and the trees and the, and the birds and it wasn't working and so this car drives by and stops and there were no cars driving by but this car drives by stops backs up and there were hippies and I'm thinking okay and they said well where are you, where are you heading and I said well I want to find a place to camp I see this mountain over here when there's a mountain there's a stream and then I can camp along the stream find maybe government lands you know they won't mind somebody just camping on their land and they said well it's getting late would you like to come to a ranch and I said okay you know I thought another commune Mm -hmm. but okay I'll be glad to they said you you know you can get have you know dinner with us Um, and so I came and I arrived on this ranch, and it's 80 acres in the middle of the Willamette Valley of Dexter, Oregon. Beautiful. You know, the high pines and, you know, the ponderosa kind of, you know, fields and just absolutely gorgeous. And there were a lot of hippie-looking people there. And so I'm getting walked around, and the fellow in the car, the two fellows, one was driving, and he happened to be the pastor. I didn't know that's what he was called. He was the pastor of all these people. His name was John Higgins, and he kind of basically kind of introduced me around a little bit and then just left me on my own. And and, um, Jack Higgins, which was the other fellow, he was the keeper of the goats, and he started just walking me around and showing me around, and so I got to talk to a lot of different people. Well, you'd kind of run into, effectively, a, a kind of a Christian commune of sorts. And then I found out when I started interacting with them and they asked me my story, they told me their story. And their story had sounded like mine, only that was, they had gone to the next step. And, and they told me it was Jesus Christ and that he saved them. And I thought, no, no. It can't be Jesus. So I'm spouting my philosophy, you know, my new age all 
religions teach you the same thing. All religions will bring you to the same, to the same. You know, I mean, and everybody listened kindly, and uh, but they just shared their love with me, and so there was two hundred of them, mm. and they happened. I found out later they happened to come from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and that was the that was their home church, their home base, and they were on this. 80-acre ranch. It was to become a training center to send out teams of ex-hippies, Jesus freaks now, all throughout the country to open up Christian houses in the different cities, Mm. and that's what they did. And but they hadn't witnessed anybody for two weeks, and they were used to witnessing every single day, (laughs) and they hadn't witnessed anybody. So here I come, this this (laughs) lamb, and I got the full treatment. But the treatment was love. Yeah. And it was reality. And so I couldn't handle it. I did spend the night, and I left immediately the next day, hitchhiked to the coast. And even my experiences, even on the way, just again cemented the fact that my lifestyle as it was, was lost. So I'm on the coast. I had a Bible. They didn't give me a Bible. One of the rides had given me a Bible. And so here I'm on the Oregon coast in Florence, Oregon. And it's beautiful. The sand dunes and the seagrasses and the driftwood and... uh, hollow out the area in the sand where I laid my sleeping bag Mm. and kind of shaped a pillow and I looked up at the stars and I just began talking to God Mm. and I said it's obvious that you're real in this because you're real in their lives I mean it's obvious that something has saved them and it's it's nothing like I know about and but I know who you I know Jesus I know because I was raised a Catholic Mm. and I knew who Jesus was but is it you Jesus Mm. is are you the reality I'm looking for? And he immediately answered yes. And he picked me up and he held me in his arms. And as he loved on me, I found that um, I was able to pour out all that sin. And I didn't even realize it was sin, the, the uncleanness and, mm. and the choices and the lifestyle and the, and the philosophies. And I just poured it out. And as I poured it out, he poured his love in and overwhelmed me with his love. So I had a Bible. I spent that night there on the coast and decided I'm going to go back this creek. I found another creek along, you know, along the Oregon coast there to to take my Bible and I was going to make sure I was for real, you know, before I took the next step. And so I was miserable because God told me go back to Shiloh. And so I went back to Shiloh, which was this Christian ranch, this 88-acre Christian ranch was called Shiloh, which was an extension of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So my husband, Stephen, was there. He was one of those 200. Not your husband at that point. He wasn't my husband at that point, but this man, Stephen Gilbert, was there. And he said later about me, he said, you were very scary. Because you had an attitude. I had an attitude. You know, my walking stick and my combat boots and my coveralls. You were quite an and, independent spirit. Yeah. By the sound of yeah. It. yeah. So, uh, yeah. but God softened me up. And right. um, so I stayed in Shiloh for, that's, that was the summer of 1970. And I stayed in Shiloh until 73. Got married in 1972. Um, we were on the on the land at Dexter and part of the training for the training of the teams. Um, my husband was the printer, and he taught the evening studies, the 10 chapters. Then I got sent to Burns, Oregon. We opened up a house in Burns, Oregon, which is the, the Oregon desert, high desert. Then we went to Boise, 
And Stephen is at Boise, Idaho, opened up a house there. Then we, we our team went to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, opened up a house there. Stephen's team, mm. or a couple guys, went to Charleston, South Carolina. Then there was a, a house in, um, where was it in Georgia? Um, Savannah. Savannah, Georgia. Mm. And there were, but there were houses all over. And this, so you were, you may not have called it that at the time, but you, this was part of the Jesus movement. This yes, was... just as, yeah. And if you do any history of the Jesus movement, this was one facet, you know, the house ministry at, yeah. in Shiloh yeah. as part of Calvary Chapel, because there were still houses in, mm. still that stayed locally here. And this kind of, for you, was very different to the kind of institutional kind of religion you had known, probably, as yes. a child. This, this felt very different, fresh. And uh, it was brand new for me, and yeah. so I, it was brand new for everyone else, too. Yeah. So it just became the normal. Yeah. And, and then eventually you found your way back to the, the church here in Costa Mesa. Yes, my husband and I were married. And in, um, on, the, on the ranch there, Dexter, he, was, um, he had his assignments. I had my assignments around the kitchen and uh, for the 200, you know, because it was the capacity there was about 200 people. And, uh, um, and then he knew it was time to return. Yeah. And an invitation by Pastor Chuck to take over the print shop. Yeah. There were a bunch of um, printing equipment was donated to the church. And then uh, Stephen was invited to come down, and and we came down. And would you continue in the 70s to sort of see the people kind of like you and the way you were coming into the church and, and being transformed in the way oh, that absolutely. You, you had seen? Yeah. Uh, the, we, the concerts, we had the concerts. We had, uh, so every Saturday night was a concert, and a lot of people came in, and they just, it, I guess the, the greatest um, movement was just uh, the friendship Mm -hmm. you would build a friendships with other people and Mm -hmm. bring them to church so sunday morning i mean it didn't matter it wasn't just the concerts it you know everybody was Mm -hmm. coming to all the services yeah and and in a way this was a generation where they were looking for god in all these other places right exactly uh were they surprised to find god that it was Jesus. That it was Jesus. Oh, as, absolutely. As what? Yeah, it was a big surprise. And there was one nice thing about the Calvary Chapel movement. It, it didn't have the trappings of the tradition. And, um, and that was kind of one of the things that we had... Um, had rejected yeah. was their traditions yeah. and the status I, I, quo. And, and I guess it, at that stage in its history, when it did explode with these people from the, the Jesus movement and the hippie culture coming in, that felt like you were in a church of people like you. you know, yes, exactly. This was our generation. You weren't kind of the, the young ones in a kind of elderly congregation. Right. You, this was actually a church of, of people from your generation. Except that the one nice thing about the body of Christ, and then maybe it's in the Calvary Chapel culture, is the moms and the grandmas and the grandpas and the, grand, and the fathers were there with us. Yeah. And we were together. Mm. Um, and... And they accepted you? Yes, uh, by you, that time. It, it was reluctant. Agenda. I mean, yeah. there was a reluctance mm. um, with the young people to trust yeah. uh, that it was okay to bring these hippies in mm. and it was okay to not asking them to change. You mean mm. you're not asking them to cut their hair and to you know, clean up and get a job? and Put a tie on. Yes, yeah. you know, and Chuck said, no, you know, this is their gods. He will, he will develop mm. you know, them the way he, he will mature them. And he did. Yeah. And I guess many of that generation today 
have gone and led churches, ministries themselves. So Very many, much so. so many of the people who were saved in that time. Very much so. And you'd see uh, what you would ask a lot of, I, I called us the old guard, and uh, Chuck would trust that God's calling on a young man's life. Mm. And even though he may not be all that experienced in years, and, and but if they feel called and they want to go and open up a new work, Chuck would give his blessings and his blessing was just basically praying over them and sending them and watching God do it. Yeah. That was Kathy Gilbert speaking to me, Justin Briley, at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the uh, well-known church on the west coast of the USA, which saw thousands of hippies turning to Christ in the 60s and 70s. And if you want to find more interviews with Christians in all walks of life, then do go to our website, premierchristianity.com slash free sample to ask for a free sample copy of the latest Premier Christianity magazine. Well, coming up in the second half of today's profile, Sam Hales will be speaking to Joseph Steinberg about growing up in a Jewish family and coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That's next on The Profile. You are a leader, whether you realise it or not. In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, Andy Peck gives lessons from the life of Christ on leading from wherever you are. Plus, the world's best-known Bible scholar N.T. Wright reveals the Apostle Paul you never knew. Tim and Rachel Hughes share their story of leading worship and an exciting new church plant in Birmingham. And as Hamilton makes its West End debut, find out how God shows up in the musical everyone wants to see. Ask for a free copy of the magazine at premierchristianity.com slash freesample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and a very good afternoon to you. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales and it is The Profile this afternoon. We are, of course, looking at another person's life, faith and ministry. You've just heard Justin Briley speaking to Kathy Gilbert and you can, of course, read that as well in Premier Christianity magazine. Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample to request a free copy of the latest issue and we'll send it to you so you can have a closer look at Kathy's story and maybe pass it on to someone else who might enjoy it as well. Uh, but coming up now, I'm speaking to Joseph Steinberg. He's from Christian Witness to Israel and he has a really fascinating story to share about how he came to faith. So let's have a listen in. Joseph, thanks for coming on the program. It's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start on the show by asking a person about their testimony, about what their first encounter was with Christianity or with Jesus. So did you come from a Christian background yourself? No, actually, I was raised in a Jewish home. And as you can tell from my accent, it actually was in the United States where I, where I grew up. In terms of being raised in a Jewish home, what was your impressions of Jesus? What were you taught as a youngster about Christianity or about who Jesus was? Well, my father was um, a teenager when the Second World War ended. And so for him, the Holocaust was devastating. And we were really raised uh, in that context of understanding and remembering that our people for 2,000 years have been killed in the name of Jesus. I mean, many people don't know this, but many of the camps, when you went in, you were told, we kill you because you killed our Savior. And and throughout the history of Christianity, uh, the, the conflict with Jewish people has been 
pretty immense where we've been called Christ killers. And, you know, there was the Inquisition, the Crusades, the pogroms, all these things were done to Jewish people in the name of Jesus. So in my upbringing, my whole faith was in a sense an anti-faith. We, if anyone asked me what I believed as a Jew, I would say, I don't believe in Jesus. So part of part of the identity of you being Jewish is that to be Jewish means that you don't believe in Jesus. And I guess that continues now, doesn't it? A lot of Jews, that's that's how they think of themselves. Absolutely. I mean, one of the defining identities of a Jewish person that we can all agree on, because you can have an Orthodox Jew, a Reformed Jew, a Conservative Jew, a Jew who's atheist, a Jewish person who has, believes in Buddhism or New Age practices. But the one thing that we can all agree on is that you cannot be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And yet you yourself say that now you do believe in Jesus as a Jew. So, so how did that shift come about? So uh, it's really quite extraordinary because all through my uh, early life, having been raised in that context, I was very much somebody, I wouldn't maybe say I hated Jesus, but I was definitely entirely opposed to him. He was the opposite to what I aspired to be. Here's a guy who in my estimation then, was was so weak that he couldn't even defend himself, and he ends up being crucified. And uh, I just had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And that was really something that my my family you know put in me. It's something that my family agreed with as a way of the Jewish community. And um, we moved to a new neighborhood when I was in my early teens, and I within a week became aware of a a young man about my age. He was fifteen. I was thirteen. And he came into our front garden and started, uh, my father was clearing it up because we had just moved in, and he started sharing the gospel with my father. And my father got quite angry and immediately demanded that he leave our property. And his name was Mark, and uh, I didn't know him, but I saw what what happened, and I thought it was um, a little bit stressful. And about a week later, the doorbell rang, and my mother went to the door and answered the door, and I was with her. And again, it was Mark, and he was handing out gospel tracts to all the houses in the neighborhood. And my mother said, we're Jewish. We don't believe in Jesus. And she slammed the door on him. And then the next week, my sister, it was summertime, so there was nothing to do. Uh, School was out. She went up to the local uh, high street, and he was there with a bunch of other people her age and began to share the gospel with her again. Uh, And uh, she got angry and left and came home and sort of was quite irate about it. So my first three experiences of this young man were here's this zealous Christian trying to share his faith. But uh, wouldn't you know it, the next week, it was my turn, and uh, he was playing basketball, and I went to shoot some hoops, and the next thing you know, he stopped, held onto the ball, and, and told me his story, that he had recently moved uh, to the neighborhood about two years earlier, and because his family had divorced his parents, and gotten into drugs and alcohol and other things, and uh, was really unhappy. And one day, he was watching a television evangelist about a year later, and uh This television evangelist said, if you want to know God's peace, his love, his joy, if you want to know his forgiveness, then get up off your chair, go and put your hands on the television and pray this prayer with me and ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And this uh, guy told me a story and he said, you know, Jesus changed my life and now I can't help but tell everyone about Jesus. He's the Savior. Uh, You know, he's the Lord. And uh, I said, I noticed. (laughs) So he then said to me, well, Joseph, uh, what do you believe? And I said, well, I don't believe in Jesus. And he said, well, I asked you what you believe in, not what you don't believe in. And it really struck me as quite profound that I had realized then and there that my faith was an anti-faith. And, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what I believed. I believed that one day the Messiah would come and bring peace to the earth. But beyond that, I didn't know. Hmm. So he challenged me to read the Bible. 
and find out what God expected from me as a Jew. So I went home. Um, I dug through a box of books, uh, which had uh, my father's uh, Old Testament in it. Of course, Jewish people don't call it the Old Testament. We call it the Tanakh, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is Torah, Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, but it's the Old Testament. And got it out, and uh, he said to me, if you do read the Bible, ask God to speak to you through it. And so I opened up this Bible, and every day for a year, I read the Old Testament. Every day for a year, I said, God, if this is your word, please speak to me through it. I was 13 years old at the time, but I had a fear of death. I wanted to know if there was a God. I wanted to know, you know, what it meant to be Jewish. Why, why do we exist as a people? What is, what is it all about? And so every day I read the Bible. And as I read through the Bible, I just became more convicted that God is holy, that even though I was so young and hadn't really done anything terrible, I knew that I wasn't holy. I didn't have the same relationship that my friend Mark had uh, with God. I knew that I, it, there was a difference. I became envious of the faith that he had. But at the same time, I knew I couldn't believe in Jesus. So there was a bit of a challenge there, I've got to say. <laughs> you know, What happened after about a year was uh, all my opposition to Jesus, all my opposition to everything new. My friend would say, you know, he had the New Testament, he had a new covenant, he had a new heart, he had a new life and all these things. And I was like, why this new, 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 new? What's wrong with... What's wrong with the uh, old covenant and the old testament and the and God's old covenant people and you know and one day I was reading in the prophet Jeremiah I had been sort of reading through the Bible this is a year on now it's the following summer I get to Jeremiah 31 verse 31 and it was like it was the weirdest thing I've never had it happen since nor before the words on the page sort of flipped around like a fish and it really just kind of startled me and I read very carefully what Jeremiah 31 31 said and beyond. And basically in that passage, God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah because you broke the old covenant. I was a faithful husband. You were unfaithful, but I am continuing to be faithful. I'm going to make this new covenant and I'm going to forgive you your sins. I'm going to write my law no longer on stone, but on your hearts. Everyone's going to know me because, because of this forgiveness that I'm going to bring to the new covenant. And it really impacted me. Of course, the end of that passage, God is saying he's renewing this covenant in a way that as long as there's a sun and a moon, uh, you know, the, the Jewish people will never cease to be a nation before God. And so I found it a very affirming passage, but it also challenged me to the core. And because of reading that, uh, I decided that I really wanted to find out more about Jesus because I had heard so much from my friend and seen in his life that Jesus was this person who brought a new covenant. So I figured it was time. Uh, to go ahead and have a look in the New Testament. So it was the it was the Old Testament inside the Old Testament pointing to a new covenant, saying there would be a new covenant that kind of enabled you to think, well, I can now at least consider this idea that that Jesus might be bringing a new covenant. Absolutely. Uh, so all of my first year was simply spent in the Old Testament, reading and praying and seeking God with all my heart, really wanting to know, you know, what He was about and what He wanted. And it was really through that year that God slowly um, softened my heart and perhaps even, I would say, took the blindness from my eyes to be willing to reconsider uh, this new covenant that Jesus said that, that he was making. And you were, you were only 14, uh, 14 years old, a teenager when this was happening. So how did your family, how did your, your Jewish family react to this idea that you were, you were starting to consider uh, to follow Jesus, this, this idea that for presumably your family were completely against? So it's really interesting. As I read for that year, of course, I was only reading the Old Testament and I had a lot of questions and I would ask my Christian friend questions. 
But I would also um, ask my parents the same questions because I wanted to give everyone a fair shot at helping me have a perspective on what the Bible was saying. It's very fair. Yeah. Um, but my parents, uh, as good Reformed Jews, didn't really believe the Bible was anything more than perhaps a book of fables, you know, sort of like Aesop's fables. It wasn't. It was a book that instructs you, but it wasn't really literally truth. Okay. And I, I struggled with that view because my view as I was reading it was this is truth. It was ringing true in my heart. And uh, so I found the answers my Christian friend was giving me just coherently made a lot more sense to me. Um, but, of course, I never said, nor did I ever think, that I was considering following Jesus. And even when I went to the New Testament, I went to the New Testament with great fear and trepidation. I mean, Jewish people do not read the New Testament. And for me, I always had a fear of even just opening it because, you know, it's like this superstitious thing that bats are going to fly out and get tangled in your hair, you know, this <laughs> this sort of cursed book, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like if I said to to everyone, hey, you should try the Book of Mormon. It's really inspiring. You know, I, <laughs> I, people would think that there was something really wrong with me because there would be, I think. <laughs> but um, so that's my feeling toward the New Testament. So it was really quite a revelatory moment when I read Jeremiah 31. And it wasn't something that I said to my parents, oh, wow, I had this amazing experience. I'm going to read the New Testament now. It was I realized that I was moving on to thin ice when I decided to go ahead and, yeah. and have a look at the story of Jesus. Uh, and the reason I was willing to do that was my friend kept saying, these are these are men who live with Jesus day in and day out, yeah. who will be yeah. able to communicate with you much better than I can about who Jesus was and what he did. Because as that year went on, the, my friend sharing with me made me envious, as I said, and I had a lot of questions about Jesus and his experience of him. Mm. So uh, so what happened next? So um, I got a hold of a Gideon's New Testament, uh, opened it up, didn't know where to start. I was on my own. My friend was actually away at the time. So I just decided I would start on the first page, which happens to be the Gospel of Matthew, of course. And as I began to read, uh, and this was the King James Version that I got a hold of as well. So, um, But as I started to read, I really was amazed at Jesus. And, uh, you know, Jewish people, we think more functionally, you know, are, are, we're not based, our thinking isn't based on ideas. So, you know, you could say that you're the Messiah, but you're just saying it. You'd really have to prove it. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I, I could see that if, if he was the Messiah, if God came in human flesh, he would do the things that Jesus did. You know, all the stories we know about, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, that the story of the man being lowered down through the roof, you know, Jesus says, so that you may know I have the power to forgive sins because Jewish people thought you were sick because you were sinful. He says, rise, take up your bed and, and go. And that's why the, the rabbis were so angry with him you know, because he actually demonstrated that power. You know, when he went up to a leper, that story, I'll never forget it, when he touches a leper and makes the leper whole. Having studied so much of the Old Testament, I understand Leviticus says you're not even allowed to get close to a leper. And lepers in the New Testament times, you know, they had to wear like cowbells around their necks and live outside the city and ring that bell in case anyone came close. And Jesus doesn't just shout towards the man saying, be clean, and then coming up to him. He actually goes up and touches the man. And to me, that was a power demonstration that he's saying, look, I'm God. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, And this man is no longer a leper. Jesus wasn't made a leper. This man is actually made whole instead. So for me, all these things just spoke volumes. Uh, and so I actually devoured the Gospel of Matthew in three afternoons. I read it in over three afternoons. And when I got to the end and you know, I had, a, as I said, I had a fear of death. When I saw the way that Jesus faced his death, he said, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. 
And when he goes to his death, he's going for a purpose. And I saw that. And when he died, rather than dying weakly and gurgling and crying in his own blood like I thought he had, here I see him proclaim a victory shout at the end. It says in Matthew that he gave up his spirit. When all that he came to accomplish was fulfilled, he gave up his spirit. And uh, and then that just made such an impact on me. Wow. And then, you know, and, and then I read about his resurrection, which I'd already heard about, of course. But when I had all that together, that whole package in those three afternoons in the Gospel of Matthew, I knew at the end of the story that I needed to make a decision one way or the other. And either Jesus was the Messiah or he wasn't. And if he wasn't the Messiah, well, then, of course, I shouldn't believe in him. But then I also realized that my Christian friend shouldn't believe in him either because there's only one Messiah. Mm. But if he was the Messiah, I realized the most Jewish thing I could do was to believe in him. And I didn't know a single Jewish person in the world at that stage who believed in Jesus. I'm 14 years old. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, there's maybe 10,000 Jewish people in the whole city. And uh, I'm in my, in my room, you know, and I just, it was between me and God. And I said, God, you know, this is scary to me. I know how you feel when we worship false gods. And I've been taught my whole life that Jesus isn't, you know, not the Messiah, but you know, I, I'm afraid that I, you're going to get mad at me, but I think that he is, and, and I'm going to make a deal with you. I was praying, and I said, Lord, I'm going to ask Jesus into my life as my Lord and Savior, and if he's the Messiah, show me, and I'll keep believing. And if he's not, show me, and I'll reject him. And I just got on my knees there um, in my bedroom by my bed, and I just asked Jesus to come into my life as my Lord and Savior. I asked God to forgive me of my sins because of what Jesus did for me on the cross and and to help me to know and to grow in my faith, if Jesus really is true. And, you know, that was a long time ago now. And since, since then, what's happened? You know, have you, have you found yourself having serious doubts and, and contemplating sort of going back to Judaism or, or, or has your sort of faith grown and it's become even clearer that you made the right decision? Yeah, well, I mean, here I am talking to you and I can proudly, by God's grace, say that he's only shown me time and time again that Jesus is the Messiah that I was longing to see come. It's been a fantastic journey with the Lord. It really has. And he's only shown me time and time again that he is the Messiah. And there's never been a moment of doubt in my life, no matter how difficult it's been. And I can say as a 14-year-old in a Jewish home that when I told my parents and my family that I believe Jesus is the Messiah, uh, it didn't go down very well. No, I can I can imagine what, what exactly happened there. Um, I mean, you, I have heard stories before where, where not necessarily from a Jewish background, but sometimes when someone changes what they believe dramatically from one religion to another, um, you do hear stories of families very sadly, you know, disowning that person. Was was that your experience? I wasn't disowned, um, but it was very difficult. And I can understand now. Obviously, you know, I'm 52 now. I was 14 then. Uh, when I look back, you know, even the way I told my family was the way a 14 year old communicates things. <laughs> not not a lot of, um, you know, uh, being very careful in that situation. So, you know, the way my parents heard it was that I was proclaiming myself a Gentile. When I said I'm a Christian, you know, they didn't understand what they heard the word Christian. They were hearing, you know, I'm somebody who hates Jews, who wants to kill Jewish people. And and I choose a, a Gentile God. They right. didn't understand the, the nuances. Um, and it, it's taken years of that. Now, I have to say that my family still, after all these years, 
haven't embraced Jesus as a Messiah. They wouldn't agree with my perspective. And my mother passed away maybe 15 years ago now, maybe slightly longer than that. And she, as far as I know, um, still didn't agree with that view. But, um, you know, it was it was difficult because you know I, I wasn't kicked out of the house. I was living at home. Um, but my father was devastated uh, by the news and our relationship was destroyed, really. Um, it, it became non-existent. Uh, I wouldn't say that he never spoke to me for for a number of years, but to a degree, um, there wasn't any communication except, you know, uh, you know, get the hammer or, you know, make sure the car's back by 10 o'clock. There wasn't the same kind of involvement that, that we had before, because before then the family was very tight knit. I was very close with my father and my mother. And, and after I told them, of course, it was a shame for them, a shame to them. Uh, it was an embarrassment and it was very hurtful. You know, I, they felt betrayed. And the word that, that the Jewish community uses for a Jewish person like myself who comes to faith is mashumid, which basically means a traitor or an apostate. Um, and it's a very shameful thing to have your child do that. But I mean, you know, it, in a Muslim context, I know that you can be murdered. Uh, and so I can't, you know, say that it was something like that. It was just uh, very emotionally challenging when you're 14 years old and you find yourself almost completely alienated from your family in that way, but still living under the same roof. Yes. Uh, how, how long was it until you found somebody like you in the sense that somebody who was Jewish, who believed in Jesus the Messiah? Because you mentioned as a 14 year old, there weren't really any examples of anyone else like that. So did you later encounter that kind of community that, that nowadays is often turned Messianic Judaism? So it only took me about three days to find, um, as I let a couple of people know that I believed in Jesus, somebody gave me a book of a testimony of a Jewish person who'd come to faith. And then I heard of a number of different organizations of Jewish people who believed in Jesus and began became aware of Messianic congregations and, and all these different things. But because of the context, when I told my family that I believed in him, which it took me about six months to do that, but when I got the courage... Um, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to anything that was remotely Christian. I had to hide my Bible in a slit in the mattress so it wouldn't be thrown away. My Christian teaching was on cassettes hidden in my socks. I was forbidden to go to church. I couldn't receive Christian posts. I wasn't supposed to have Christian friends. I was secretly baptized in a in a river in the forest. You know, it was um, sort of you know, Iron Curtain style faith a, for the first four years, you some know? People, some people might even term it a sort of um, rebellion, rebellious teenager. Your, your idea of rebelling as a teenager was to was to do this <laughs> thing following Jesus. I mean, it, it doesn't look like typical teenage rebellion, but it is rebellion of a sort, isn't it? I mean, it, it could be seen as that way. The irony is that I'm the least rebellious person that you could know. I mean, you know, I... I I set my my cruise control to the speed limit. Um, I like to. I'm not really not a lawbreaker. I, I wasn't a. I, you know, I wasn't a rebellious teenager. I was just somebody that God got a hold of. And you know, I had always and I always, as I said, even I remember when I was five years old, lying in my bed before I started school, thinking I'm going to start school next year. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to get wisdom. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. And one day I'm going to die. And then what was it all for? Is it going to be one last laugh and then I'm going to no longer exist? And it, the thought terrified me. I was just somebody who, for whatever reason, I'm going to say it's God's sovereignty and his, his call, you know, uh, just always thought about spiritual things and eternal things and 
you know, God yeah. got a hold of me at a very young age, yeah. you know, and it's his grace that, yeah. that did that. Very deep thinker from, a, from an early age. You, um, you mentioned the word Christian already, I think, in the context of telling your parents about your new beliefs. And I wanted to, to talk about that a little bit, um, because what you've just described in terms of the theology of following Jesus as a Messiah, um, certainly most Christians in the world who are obviously Gentile, they, they use that term Christian. But you've already indicated that that term for the Jewish community holds a huge amount of baggage. Um, you mentioned the Holocaust and Christian anti-Semitism down through the ages. And I know a lot of um, Jews who follow Jesus today wouldn't necessarily use that term Christian. I just wanted to know what's your perspective on that On that term. Is, is that an unhelpful term still for a lot of Jewish people? So they'd instead call themselves a Messianic Jew or a, or a Jewish believer in Jesus? For a lot of Jewish um, believers in Jesus or Jewish followers of Jesus, uh, the word Christian is uh, very difficult to come to terms with in terms of using it. For myself, I don't have a problem with it at all. I feel very secure in my Jewish identity. I don't feel I need to prove it to anyone. It, it is what it is. And um, I'm happy. I, I actually define myself as a Jewish Christian because I'll always say to a Jewish person, well, you need to understand what the word Christian means. It's It means a follower of Christ, and Christ is simply Greek from, from Messiah or Mashiach. So I'm a follower of, of the Messiah. Um, I don't feel myself any problem but i do understand the sensitivities of others and i guess i'm kind of one of these people who stands in the middle of it all and now of course working with christian witness to israel um, mm -hmm. do you want to tell me a little bit about what christian witness to israel does and um, some of your ministry now yeah so christian witness to israel is a is a missionary work to the jewish people that's been going on for uh, we've just celebrated 175th anniversary in fact and um, so it's it's been going on for a long time, and it's really uh, started by very, um, you know, loving Christians who wanted to bring the the good news of Jesus the Messiah back to the Jewish people from whom it came. And um, you know, in fact, when I go back to our very first meeting, it was very much something that was done in partnership with uh, Jewish believers in Jesus at the time. And we've often had um, both a mixture of Gentile and Jewish missionaries over the years. But it's been an extraordinary work, you know, I mean, you could almost say over the centuries, but we haven't quite hit the second one yet. Really um, working across Europe. Now, the thing that we need to remember when we think about Jewish mission is that with the Holocaust, the whole face of Jewish population has, has changed. And really, Europe was the center of, of the Jewish population for just pretty much 2,000 years. And it was the Holocaust where we lost 6 million European Jewish people. And of course, then after that, with the founding of the State of Israel, that all the sort of you know demographics have changed. So now that you have this huge um, amount of Jewish population in the United States and in, and in the state of Israel. We actually have slightly more Jewish people outside of Israel in the world than in Israel, but of course Israel holds almost half the world's population. But, you know, CWI was primarily in those days by necessity because that's where the majority of Jews lived, a European mission. And um, we had, it's amazing really when you go back into our history, there were probably tens of thousands of Jewish people who believed in Jesus in Europe before the Holocaust. And we certainly saw a lot of success uh, amongst Jewish people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then, as I said, the Holocaust changed all that. And really, I feel like to a degree, you know, we, we actually were part of the kinder transport. We saved Jewish children and brought them out actually um, by airplane out of Czechoslovakia. 
and had a, set up a Jewish home and, and saw a number of them come to faith and so on. There's a few that are still alive, in fact. But then I feel like we've been trying to sort of figure ourselves out because what's happened is, of course, the American Jewish missions have expanded and grown, and uh, rightly so, because that's where the majority of Jewish population is, and there's a big support uh, amongst the church in the United States for Jewish people and and for um, Jewish people living in Israel as well. And um, so, you know, we're, we've always been basically a European-focused mission with, with the work in Israel, too. But the word Israel in our name uh, is actually a reference not to the state of Israel, but to the Jewish people itself. Um, it's just an old sort of Christian way of speaking of the Jewish people when we say Israel. So we're really a Christian mission that seeks to bring Jesus back to the Jewish people. Yes. And um, and you've stated as well that um, for yeah. you, you believe that sharing the uh, sharing the Christian message with Jewish people is incredibly important. You've even gone as far to say that if we don't share our faith with Jews, that's a form of anti-Semitism, which is a, a very strong way of putting the need to um, share our faith with Jewish people. Now, I guess there are, there's a couple of different points of view on this. I mean, one that I'm familiar with is this idea of dual covenant theology, where some people will say that the Jews are saved under the old covenant. They don't need to know about Jesus. There's these kind of two covenants, which, of course, you would reject. And I think most most Christians would reject that. But what perhaps is more common is is a hesitancy to want to talk to Jewish people about Jesus, perhaps out of fear, um, perhaps out of understanding that Christians have such a terrible track record. You know, who are we? Who are we to sort of tell the Jews to, to believe something else, given how they've suffered historically at the hands of Christians? And I guess on top of that as well, sometimes a reluctance to know, well, well how do you open up the gospel with, with Jewish people? I would imagine most Christians would say that if they were just given the Old Testament, they wouldn't do a very good job of explaining to a Jewish person just using the Old Testament, uh, you know, how all these verses point towards Jesus. We may know in theory they do, but actually finding the right verses could, could be tough for the average Christian. Do you, I know there's a lot to address there, but do you want to address a couple of those things of what, what actually puts the average Christian off of Jewish evangelism and, and how you're seeking to change that? Sure. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, this whole dual covenant thing, I mean, as you said, uh, th- I'm not going to give it a lot give it a lot of time because, I mean, Paul is really clear. If we just stuck with Romans chapter 10, say, for instance, the first four verses— you know, he comes right out and says that Jewish people need to be saved, right? So, I mean, you know, there there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we can be saved. Jesus, as a Jewish Messiah, said to Jewish people in Israel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His audience were Jewish people. He wasn't saying, well, look, you can stick with Moses or you can follow me. I mean, he said there's only one way. So I think that, you know, we don't, necessarily have to give a lot of time to the whole dual covenant thing. Jewish people need to be saved. Paul says that he wished that he was accursed and cut off from God so that Jewish people would be saved. Of course, Jesus was accursed and cut off from God so that we can be saved, ironically. So so again, Jewish people definitely need Jesus. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of looking at um, the history of Christianity and its dealing with the Jewish people, and you've got you know, Martin Luther's writings fueling Kristallnacht and the Holocaust, and as I mentioned, the Holocaust, uh, not only the Holocaust, but the Crusades and Inquisition and so on. You can say that a lot of these people who perpetrated these things weren't true Christians because Jesus said you'd know them by their love, but then you would also know that some of these people were true Christians and just greatly um, 
Yes. I mean, something like someone like Martin Luther, I think, is a real struggle for a lot of Christians, because I think certainly a lot of Protestant Christians would recognise Martin Luther um, as rediscovering the importance of salvation through faith alone and grace and the importance of scripture and seem to have these amazing revelations, really, of as he read through Romans and kickstarted the, the Reformation and Christians celebrate all that. And yet, as you say, when you come across some of Martin Luther's anti-Semitic writings, it's really horrific when he talks about on the Jews and their lies and, and all of this really vile stuff i think it's it's hard for a lot of christians to square that as you say it's hard for a lot of christians to say oh he wasn't really a christian no i mean i believe that there were a lot of you know good christian people like martin luther who were really absolutely wrong when it came to the jewish people um you know but i think that two wrongs do not make one right so just because that they were wrong in the way that they treated jewish people doesn't therefore mean that we can't do what jesus said to do jesus said you know, keep the main thing, the main thing here. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, you know, go to Jerusalem, Judea, so obviously the Jewish people, but then go to Samaria, you know, and then into the uttermost parts of the, the world. So, you know, if we just follow the command of Jesus, if we keep it simple, we, we have to bring the gospel back to the Jewish people. That's exactly what Paul says, you know, and, and you see Paul even getting frustrated in the book of, of um of Acts. And yet the next day, you know, where he's been attacked by the local Jewish community in one place, the next day he's right back in the synagogue again as his starting place before he goes out to the general, you know, populace. He says, you know, to the go gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's what he practiced. Um, so I don't feel like no matter what horrible things have been done in the name of Jesus, we should ever not share Jesus with Jewish people. And for myself, you know, and this is part of the problem, too, let me say. When we talk about Israel or the Jewish people as a whole, we do the opposite to what Jesus did. Because Jesus looked at people as individuals. He dealt with people as individuals. He healed people. He forgave people. He, he moved people along as individuals. And so for me, you know, when I think about my own story, I think about where I would be if, if my friend Mark had um, said, oh, well, look at, you know, look at this family. They're really angry, and I guess they should be because, you know, Mr. Steinberg experienced the Holocaust personally, and when it, the news broke when he was young and so on, and these were Christian people, and I better not ever offend them. Where would I be today? I can't imagine my life without the Lord Jesus. I can't imagine what state I would be in today without him. I'm sorry, that's all we've got time for on The Profile this afternoon. Thank you so much for listening to Premier Christian Radio. This show has been The Profile with myself, Sam Hales, and also earlier Justin Brawley interviewing Kathy Gilbert. If you'd like to hear more interviews with Christians and hear more encouraging stories and testimonies from church leaders, from sports people, from people from all walks of life, really, then you can go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile and you'll be able to have a look at all the past episodes that we've done all of the really interesting people that we've spoken to on the show in weeks gone by you can also now access the profile as a podcast just search for the profile um, on any podcast provider and you should find us there also at the website premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and one final reminder that this show is brought to you in association with the magazine that i edit that's premier christianity magazine the uk's leading christian magazine if you'd like a free sample copy please do head to our website premierchristianity.com and we'd be delighted to send one to you. Coming up next, though, here on Premier Christian Radio is Premier Playback.